Hi, welcome back to Eight Words or Less. This is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, Eight Words or Less. Some of you know me already. I'm Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm James. I'm your other host. And this is actually a bonus episode. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Bill George, who is the author of Discover Your True North. Well, what Bill hasn't done isn't worth talking about. Bill has had a distinguished career in business, which saw him being the CEO and chairman of Medtronic, as well as sitting on a number of boards, including ExxonMobil, the Mayo Clinic, and Goldman Sachs. He's also a professor at Harvard Business School, which is where I got to learn firsthand from Bill back in 2015. Now, Bill, I have to admit to you, I didn't actually do the pre-course reading of your book. (laughs) So when I arrived at Harvard, I had my camera ready. And at 2pm, they said, okay, let's meet in the lecture hall. So ready to do a tour. I was surprised to be talking about generics, biosimilars, S-curves and divestment within a few minutes of arriving. And that evening, you put us into support groups, which was so powerful. And that's when I had the courage to speak up and go, what are you all talking about? And we said, didn't you do the pre-course reading? So I'm glad to say, as part of this podcast, of course, I have now read your book. Uh Yeah, and we did an episode where the central message was authentic leaders go from me to we. So it's great to have you with us, Bill. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Sammy and James. Bill, years on. So you taught me about the power of values and it's informed so much of my life um, and what I've gone on to do since we met in 2015. I work now with top leaders around the world and I ask them about their core values. And the majority of leaders say to me, uh, you know, I think it, and they're just not particularly clear on what they are. And therefore I'm assuming it doesn't feed how they show up, their true, true north or the moral compass as you describe. Bill, what are you noticing? What do you see? And yeah, what's going on? Well, I think there is a big shift going on in the business world right now. We finally moved away from the idea of shareholder primacy, that maximizing profit and shareholder value is all that it's about. And we're learning, particularly during this period of COVID-19, and uh, as compounded with an economic crisis in the United States, at least uh, a racial crisis, we're learning the importance of values and integrity and meeting the needs of our employees as well as our customers being primary. And if we do that, shareholder value will follow. I've seen it happen for every major organization that's publicly held that I've been involved with. But if you don't have that, eventually you'll lose all the shareholder value once built up. Mm. Yeah, and I remember one case study we talked about at Harvard Business School about Paul Pullman, who was then CEO of Unilever. And having those really challenging conversations back then with shareholders to say, I know that we're publicly listed, but we're not going to have that quarterly reporting because if we're going to deliver on the values and purpose of this organization, it's probably not going to happen in 12-week cycles where we're chasing the the metrics. Well, that's a great example. I mean, Paul made Unilever's True North sustainability. And he translated that in everything they did, from products, uh, how they made soups in Vietnam, to uh, how they treated suppliers in Africa. And uh, that became not just the mantra, but the core value. 
And I think he put over a thousand people through uh, a private course we put together for him on uh, on True North, and so that every leader could find their True North, but then translate that into what they did for Unilever. And now his successor, Alan Jupe, is carrying that on brilliantly and making some very bold moves about plastics and some other things that, uh, uh, frankly, I wouldn't have expected. So good for him. Yeah, I've always been curious whether when you have such an involved leader, the challenge is, is it sustainable in the terms of when you leave, your legacy, the person who then steps in? And it's great to see that Alan has taken on the helm. Wonderful. Well, that's the key in all leadership to have sustainable organization. I've been on the boards of organizations like uh, Goldman Sachs, the Mayo Clinic, uh, that have been around for over 150 years. And how do you can only do that through sustaining leadership? In fact, both those organizations I was around when the change came in the CEO. And that became a key part of the decision. Do we have the CEO with the character who can take us to the next level? We don't know what to expect. And of course, now we've seen with the new CEOs, a lot of chaos and uh, certainly in healthcare, and that's translated into economic chaos as well. Yeah, character, but not necessarily being charismatic and making that distinction. Bill, I, it was interesting to hear you talk, and, and please, I just want to echo Sammy's comments and say a big thank you. It's a true privilege to get a, a chance to talk to you after reading your wonderful book. And one of the things that, that hit home to me, and, and you were just talking about the big shift that we go in the world, I loved where you, you talked about the defining moments that we can use in our lives, that the, you referred to them as crucibles, to help us reach that authentic leadership. And it it struck me that actually what we're going through at the moment, this coronavirus pandemic, as organizations, as leaders, and as individuals, may be providing that same almost opportunity to reframe it, to drive authenticity in the way we lead. Do you see that happening anywhere? Is is that something that some of our listeners can take on board and, and, and try and make a positive out of the challenge? Oh, I certainly do in the corporate world. I think uh, it's causing corporate leaders and employees to really examine what's important. And, you know, the thing about a crucible is it strips away all the pretense, all the, if you will, the nice clothing, and it gets us down to our essence of who we are and force us to look at our inner character and it's forcing organizations to look at who they are. Let's take uh, the world's largest organization, private employers, Walmart. Let's look at how they Doug McMillan has really transformed that company and said, you know, we're not paying our employees enough. The important people are the ones on the front line. They're the ones risking their lives from the stock stock people to the clerks that have to engage with people every day. Clearly, that's true in healthcare. These are the people. And McMillan put out right away in, in early March, uh, $550 million more just for first line employees to say, we need to recognize their value. But you see this in every industry. Who is it you encounter in a hotel, in an airline, anywhere, in any form of service? You, you see the first-line people. You don't see the executives. And my view is we need to we need to both compensate, but we need to honor these first-line employees that are really doing the work and probably de-emphasize the middle managers that are more controlling budgets. But put the emphasis on the people that are customer-facing that are the most important. You go into a hospital, who do you see? You see nurses, you see technicians, you see the doctors, you don't see the executives. I've never been a hospital executive inside a, instead of a, a hospital. And it's that amazing everyday courage. You see it at supermarkets, you see it everywhere. People still coming into work, making sure society can function. And in a way, the way that 
companies react, organizations react now will will be remembered. The, the colleagues, the employees that are working, whether they really put safety first, provided the right level of equipment, whether leaders really responded in a way that is authentic. And you, know, you talk about the different type of leaders, some of whom have reached positions perhaps nefariously or, or through political means or others. And perhaps in these times, you see the true colors of leaders coming through? Is that you also- sure do. You, you absolutely do. And when you, you know, I was just thinking of my son, John, his uh, wife, Jeanette, who are both doctors at uh, UCSF in, Cal- in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, uh, John would not be in a leadership role. He's an associate professor, but he's doing life-saving surgery every day. And for a few weeks, they said, no, no, you can't come in. Uh, we're only doing emergencies. So I can tell you, if you have a rapidly growing thyroid cancer or melanoma, that's an emergency. You don't need to wait six months to get that taken care of. And so he's going in every day. And of course, there are COVID patients there. And I'm not saying the ones he's treating, but because they test everyone. But yeah, yeah, there is a risk. But you know, that's what you do. As he said, Dad, my job is service. That's what I, but I think everyone should think of their jobs that way. What are the rewards for people on the front line? They're never going to be wealthy. They're going to be wealthy like the bankers. They're going to be, but their, their wealth, if you will, comes from the reinforcement of, of helping serve people. And it may be a simple thing like carrying your grocery, an old lady carrying your groceries out to her, her car or to her cart. You know, it doesn't have to be something dramatic that I saved a life today. It's that I cared about you and that caring is what, and that's what authentic leaders bring to their organizations, I think. Leaders of service, as as you reference in the book. Yes, exactly. Bill, so many leaders, they ask me, what exactly is authenticity? And my central message from the book was authentic leaders go from me to we. And just to uncover that slightly, My sense when I was reading Discover Your True North and from the work that we've done is for me to be of service, the we part, I need to turn the periscope, if you like, towards myself. So I need to do my work. And then authenticity is once I've looked at myself and stripped away some of the layers, then I step into the service of we after that. But I'm just noticing this question keeps coming up. What is authenticity? I should say that my first book, written in 2003, was called Authentic Leadership. And I was always surprised, Sammy, by that question. Here we are now, 17 years later, and we're still getting that question. To me, it's so simple. Uh, It's being genuine. It's being real. It's the real you. You know, you can't fake it to make it. Who are you at your core? It's your essence. And so I think being authentic means being genuine, being real, being true, true to your values, to the people you serve. And if you can do that and do it with character, because leadership is character, which I learned from my mentor, Warren Bennis, it's almost that simple. And see, I think people want to look for something much more complex or they're afraid to be real. And why are they? Well, they're afraid if I'm real, Sammy, you'll reject me. So I have to put on pretense. I have to dress a certain way, look a certain way. And the one one of the few positives about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is sweeping the globe is it's forcing us to be real. People are less concerned about how they look. A lot of people couldn't get a hair. Well, you don't have to worry about that. But a lot of people, get, <laughs> I haven't had one for weeks, but then the hair is a little long, but it's okay. 
even with Zoom, the, the ability to see into someone's life outside of that corporate world right. can sometimes drive that that authenticity. People are turning up as themselves rather than as they think they should be perceived by colleagues, perhaps. Exactly. Remember in the old days, in the corporate world, the, the executive has something on the 11th floor, the Hallett Halls, you'd have to whisper, and you judge the executive by the size of their office. Today, I know major executives like at PepsiCo that ripped out all the executive offices and Mayo Clinic, and they've ripped them all out, and they're just sitting out in a bay along with everyone else. They say, it's working so much better. We're talking. We're communicating. There's no pretense. Of course, now people are at home. They can't even go to those offices. But I think that's the intent of being real. And how hard is that? Yeah, a lot of people are afraid to be real. I once read a book called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? I'm afraid if you knew who I was, you would reject me. You wouldn't think much of me. If you saw the real me, the kid that got run over in ninth grade football or wasn't popular or, you know, always tried too hard, you'd say, wow, I'm not impressed by him. Well, if I'm real, we all have had those experiences. Every one of us can think of those experiences where we were kind of forced into, do I be real or do I kind of fake it to make it? And so for a long time, we promoted people in the corporate world who would fake it to make it. And they caused a lot of harm and destruction. Some, some of them even got to the top of great companies. I used to work for Honeywell. And we had a, a leader there that became the CEO about five years after I went to Medtronic. And uh, yeah, he sold the he, to get to be CEO, he sold the company down the river to a larger company. And that was the end of a 110-year-old company. 24,000 people lost their jobs. I might say that. But he got a nice severance after he got fired after a year. And I mean, I remember when I started, it's funny how I hope times have changed a bit because the advice I was given, you know, if I wanted to succeed was almost to, to fake it, to make it. They kept on saying, you could, you've got to, got to be a different work, James, to home, James. You're, yeah. you're not demonstrating enough gravitas, all of which are ways of saying pretend to be someone you might not necessarily be. And I do see less of that now. I, I think people are far more accepting. And I think COVID-19 has accelerated a lot of trends. One of the good ones is I think it's accelerated that sort of acceptance of be yourself and, and people will, will recognize and respond to it. So, James, if I'm not mistaken, you have a five-year-old baby. and Five-day-old uh, baby, yeah. <laughs> five-day-old five day baby, I misspoke. You can't fake it with your baby. And by the way, mm -hmm. she won't either. <laughs> and, uh, you know when you're up at three in the morning but this is the real you james that you're up and you're with her and you're not too busy to be there uh but i think that's much closer than putting on that three-piece suit and putting on airs and trying to be something you're not and i think that's been a big issue for the corporate world and i hope we are finally getting over that and people can be real here here uh, Bill, you talk about in your book, Global Intelligence, GQ. Mm -hmm. And from where we are, it seems like there is a retreat away from globalization of a moment, or at least globalization as we knew it. And I'm just curious, what does that mean for leaders becoming more globally intelligent? So there was IQ, intelligence, shifted to the EQ, emotional intelligence, and then, of course, you argue about GQ, this global intelligence. What's needed from us now in regards to GQ as all of this stuff is going on in the world? Well, the political leaders are becoming more nationalistic, no doubt about it. But the global business, the business leaders have to be global. Our business is, by definition, global. 
And we have to operate everywhere in the world if we're going to be successful. And that presents a whole different set of challenges for our leaders than does operating domestically. For a long time, back in my early business days in the 70s and 80s, we tried to take American set of practices and impose them on the rest of the world. That doesn't work. I'll give you an example. I was in Abu Dhabi in December, and I was invited by uh, the government to come and give a talk on authentic leadership. Uh, but, you know, it's a totally different culture for me. I'd been there before, but it was a very different culture. And so I had, I wanted to be very much a part of that culture. You know, I wanted to go to the largest mosque and see it and dig off my shoes and get down on a prayer rug. And, and I'm not Muslim, but I wanted to have that sense, that feeling of what it was really like in this culture. And I think that's really important is that cultural adaptation and curiosity. I was genuinely curious at the things they were doing and how they operated and how they did things differently. And I find that everywhere I go in the world, I go to China, just getting out in the countryside and talking to school children with a few words of broken Chinese or Japanese in Japan is really important to have that, to understand how things are different and how people look at the world and really have that appreciation. And when you can do that, then you can empower people all over the world. I remember in Medtronic, we talked about the Medtronic mission in India when I went there, but then they wanted me to plant a tree, which is an Indian tradition, and come back 10 years later and see how it had grown. They were watching me uh, see if I accepted their traditions. And I think that becomes very important to really make people feel like we are all one. We have one set of values in our organization, but we have different cultures, and we'll allow those cultures to flourish. We're not expecting people in India or China to operate like they would in in uh, England or the United States. And I lived in Belgium and, and just going to all the different countries in Europe. I love the cultural differences. I, I think it's a richness, but if you don't, you're not gonna be a good global leader if you don't appreciate that. I remember a story you told about a gentleman who might have been an American leader and he was traveling to Africa, I believe, and he elected to land a couple of days early in order to get to, maybe he wasn't charging the company for those days. But I remember this gentleman, he spent a few days getting to know the local culture and then the deal just happened because there was already a building of trust and a sense that we're in it together, you know, that sense of humanity. Yeah, he went to... He was talking to a colleague when he first got there late one afternoon. They went to a modest restaurant. He said, uh, well, where do people, uh, who do you, who's your favorite singing group? And uh, the, the guy asked him that. And he said, such and such. It turned out to be a, a group in this particular country in Dakar. Uh, and uh, he said, well, that's my favorite group. Let's go. We've got a group down the, down the road. And so he went. His friend was, uh, you know, he went to this place and, of course, this person was a Caucasian. He was the only Caucasian in the place at two in the morning. But he got a sense of the culture and what Africans, in Dakar at least, appreciated. And yeah, that made the business go much smoother. I learned that early on going to Japan in the early 70s. Man, you couldn't, you couldn't cut a deal. And they'd go on and on and on until you went out and drank some sake and beer the night before. <laughs> at, uh, you know, and, and, and appreciate their traditions. Then the next day, you get the deal done. That's right. <laughs> but I think it's that cultural, not just sensitivity, but curiosity and desire. And I, I'm really curious, how is it different? I remember going to a person's home that had a one-room house, and, and uh, I wanted to see what's that like, where all the rooms, you know, the bedroom, the living room, and the uh, dining room are one and the same. So, mm -hmm. Oh, amazing. 
So, so I have one question. Um, I was speaking to, to a colleague about this. Uh, it was amazing, not just in your book, but also listening to, to some of the speeches you've given before, the importance you place on, on the support team around you and your, your excellent advice around in good times, build that support team so that it's there for you in bad times. For those of us that, that you know, maybe the, the horse has, has bolted because we, we are now in challenging and difficult times, is there any practical advice as to how you can maybe either quickly build a support team or, or to try and get the benefits of that if you haven't put in those amazing foundations that you put in over, over I, I believe I heard you say you, you've met with the same group for, for, was it 30 years or something? It was an amazing... Oh, no, no, it's it? now, we're now up to, let me see, we're up to, we're in our 46 years. So, uh, in fact, we're meeting now twice a week during coronavirus because we want to stay in touch with what's happening to everyone. So we're meeting on Wednesdays and said, by Zoom, by the way. <laughs> my attendance has picked up because I travel so much. My attendance wasn't very good. <laughs> but it's important that you have people around you who keep you real. And I call it staying grounded. And we interviewed 172 people for Discover Your True North. And the leaders that are most successful is one that were grounded in who they were and could be natural people. And so you need that team around you. The guys in my, I have two support groups. I also have a couples group. And the people we've been associated, we've known these people for a long time. We've grown up together. And of course, they're going to keep you real. But also, when I was at the point where I wanted to leave Honeywell and I was not happy with myself and I didn't feel a sense of purpose and mission and was thinking about it, and they encouraged me to look at Medtronic and were there for me and could say, hey, it's not the size of organization you run. You don't have to run a, you know, a huge multi-billion dollar company because Medtronic is a lot smaller company. Today, it's a $30 billion company. It's grown up a lot but didn't know it then. So it's that, where, where do you fit? And everyone wants to find that place in life where they fit. And so you need to have a support team around that will help you stay real and can be there for you in the most difficult of times. One of the members of our group's wife died and going through that, and, and frankly, she had terminal disease, so she was sick for two years. Another one had his wife in Alzheimer's uh, home. And uh, that's real. These things happen over time to people. Another member of the group lost his daughter in an automobile accident and at three. And you, you can appreciate how painful that is even today, 40 years, 40 years later. So I think it's who do you turn to when life doesn't go your way? I know another CEO who is extremely successful, but a board member came in and pushed him out. And uh, but he he's now grounded with his family. And that's really important. Thank you so much, Bill. As you know, eight words or less, it's a challenge. But when you think about Discover Your True North, we said authentic leaders go from me to we. If you had to summarize the book in eight words or less, what would it be? Authentic leaders serve with character and integrity. Authentic leaders serve with character and integrity. Well, thank you, Bill, James, and of course, all of our listeners. As always, use a hashtag, eight words or less, to share your insights, questions, experiences, and make sure you subscribe so that you can download previous episodes and ensure that you never miss one of our future ones. Bye for now. <laughs>